and to our topic tonight. I am sorry to say that many of our media outlets today, um, especially those reporting on the state of the church and what's going on with the church, have an agenda to sell us, a personal agenda to get across. Um, and so it becomes very difficult for the faithful in the United States to, to determine really what's going on. Not so inside the Vatican magazine. It is uh, because of the work of Dr. Moynihan, I believe, Catholics in the United States and throughout the world are given an opportunity to learn the truth about the state of the church, the truth about what's going on in the church, not determined by Dr. Moynihan's uh, agenda, personal agenda, but determined by the truth and reality. Um, and for that, Dr. Moynihan, we thank you very much. It is a great honor uh, for us today to have Dr. Robert Moynihan. It's also my honor to be here tonight. I'm struck by the fact that this is a very Ratzingerian <laughs> uh, the Pope has been saying for some time that the church may not in the next century or in coming years be Christendom the way it was a thousand years ago, but it may have small groups of believers who will not be dominating the culture, but like leaven in, in, uh, in bread raising from within the culture, centers of uh, prayer and uh, reflection and action. And it strikes me that this, what you've created here, this center for culture, is like that. So uh, Pope just landed about three hours ago, 4.10. So it's about uh, three and a half hours ago. And uh, we'll be seeing him tomorrow. Uh, I'll be at the meeting with the bishops and I think there's going to be mass carnage. The White House early. <laughs> the White House early. Are you going to be there? I can't say. <laughs> Jerry knows everyone. So it's... Uh, uh, I thought I would just make a rather informal presentation and then uh, ask if anyone had some questions. I think... Uh, as I look around the room here at the posters, if you've been attending, it's also in some way uh, the intellectual framework of my own of mind and my own life. Uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine, Jerusalem, Father Benedict Rochelle, who's an old friend. Uh, actually, he liked this little book that I put together on the Pope, and he held it up on his EWTN program said this is the best single book you can read if you want to get the mind of Pope Benedict. And uh, Sumorum Pontificum, uh, that poster by the clock there, uh, that is precisely the topic of this lecture I gave a few months ago on the relationship of the old mass and the new mass and why the Pope introduced the uh, motu proprio to allow the old mass to be, to be said widely. And uh, Defending the Faith, Gospel of St. John, Bible Study, and Rome. Uh, this entire room is, in a sense, the, it feels like home to me. 
So I don't know if all of you are studying intently, but uh, it seems like you have a program here that will furnish your minds and your hearts for this uh, wasteland, the cultural wasteland that we often inhabit in the modern world. Uh, a little note about myself. I, I grew up in Connecticut and uh, grew up as a Catholic and have a memory of the old church and the old mass, which probably influenced me uh, profoundly. And I would say, I would attribute to that early training everything that I've done ever since. And uh, probably I owe most to my first grade nun, teacher, who actually helped me move my hand on the page to form those letters where there were lines with the dotted line in between. And she said, go up to the top and then go halfway up to make the, the B or the small letter A. And to me, those letters were magical. And in fact, I actually was pretty serious about trying to get them very correct. And I felt then that I would become a writer. And so I owe that to her. And I also think that uh, the nuns and the people who have taught us are the ones that we owe our, our intellect and also our souls to. And um, I guess what we should strive for is that we hand on, in our time, from the past to the generations after us, everything that we picked up was given handed over to us. Uh, I had a sense as a boy of being a Roman Catholic that was connected to Rome, connected to a church which was somehow in the world but not of it, and uh, united over space and time. I had a sense of the communion of saints. And it was those repeated litanies, particularly in the old liturgy, Cosmos and Damien, Peter and Paul, all of the saints. They seemed somehow strange figures. I didn't know them personally, but somehow was connected to them. And so my formation was a formation that was, in, in the small sense, small c Catholic, that is universal. I had a sense of being connected with Romans, with Greeks, with Jews, with people who throughout 20 centuries had been members of the church. And it is this Catholic sense, I think, that all of us receive, which uh, together gives us the sense of the faithful. It's a mystical thing. And the faithful have a sense of the truth of the faith. And in a certain way, uh, I think theologically, this may be an, uh, a daring statement, but I think they're infallible. And in a certain sense, what the Pope does when he is infallible is keep faith with the sense of the faithful. That's all he does. And uh, the fact that Christ promised that he would remain with his people, with the church, until the end of time, means that the sense, the faith, the, the deep feeling of the faithful, their belief, cannot pass away. However, it can be attacked, and it can be weakened, and there can be some who do fall away. And we have the great example among the disciples of Judas, 
So uh, we all should uh, be aware that um, there but for the grace of God go I. That is, um, there is a struggle. So you put on the full armor of God and you try to go forward. And every one of us has difficulties. And what this Pope is doing, uh, here he's coming to America right now. I wanted to tell you just a little bit about what I know about him. I had the good fortune of meeting him on a number of occasions. And uh, I was a student studying church history. And I went to Rome in 1984. So that was 24 years ago. And I was in St. Peter's Square. And I had seen uh, Joseph Ratzinger on television in Italy uh, meeting with Leonardo Boff, who had come to Rome to discuss liberation theology. And Joseph Ratzinger was the right hand of Pope John Paul II as the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which in prior generations was called the Holy Office of the Inquisition. So it's kind of exciting for me to meet who, the man who really, in some sense, was the Grand Inquisitor. And uh, I saw this white-haired man walking across St. Peter's Square with his briefcase. And uh, he, uh, I stopped him and I said, are you Cardinal Ratzinger? I spoke to him in English and he said, yes, I am. And I said, I'm a student here and I've been reading a book that you've written called The Theology of History in St. Bonaventure. And he said, oh. <laughs> he said, you're the only one in Rome who's read that book. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was him. And uh, I had a number of, well, I, I actually changed course from becoming a, uh, a scholar to becoming a, a writer and a journalist. It's a terrible fall. <laughs> but uh, in some ways, I must say that uh, often I feel that it's a, it's a nice group of people. The journalists don't have often, unless they get on CNN, they don't often have a high, high uh, arrogant feeling about themselves. They're more interested, okay, let's, I'd like to have an answer to this question, an answer to that question. In other words, they're straightforward. And in academic circles, you often find that people have high opinions of themselves. So in a certain sense, it's a better crowd, <laughs> the journalists. But it's not very reputable. And most, most of us look rather down our noses at journalists for legitimate reasons, because they're struggling to get a story. And if they don't get a story, they lose their jobs. So I decided I needed to find a way to get a story that wasn't tawdry and uh, sensational. So I thought I would tell the story of the church the best way I could in, in our time and kind of make a chronicle of it. So uh, I started writing articles, even though I was still writing a dissertation. And uh, people accepted them. And after two and four and six and 10 articles, I had a little reputation. And then I was invited by the National Catholic Register to be their own correspondent. And then I was invited by Trent to Journey Magazine, 30 days, to translate the whole magazine into English. And we brought that out in April 1988. And that was 20 years ago this month. And for 20 years, 
every month I brought out a magazine about the church. And uh, the first couple of years was 30 days, then we had some disagreements, and we brought out a new magazine with Father Fessio in San Francisco called Catholic World Report. Then uh, after a couple of years, I thought I'd try my own magazine, and I started this by myself inside the Vatican. And uh, welcome. Good evening. And uh, this is the 15th year of this magazine, 15 years ago. We uh, print it in Kentucky, we write it out of Rome, and this is one of the largest issues we've ever printed. And I actually thought, uh, in a way, it's a romance. It's, but I don't think it's untrue. I don't really pick and poke away at all of the uh, wounds of the church and throw salt in them. I try to take a positive line. I think there is enough of that that occurs that uh, I'm not uh, feeling that I'm not doing my job. I feel there's insufficient amount of building up the church. And the thought we had was, was really uh, in a day when we didn't have uh, internet, Rome seemed very far away, and in a sense, right now this year, we're trying to rethink what we do. Uh, we thought we'd put some photographs in the magazine, and we'd make it kind of a living chronicle of the church, and uh, people would sense that they're close to Rome. So we use the phrase, you don't have to go to Rome to get inside the Vatican. <laughs> and people were very kind, and uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was very kind, and uh, probably I had uh, 20 different interviews with him. And uh, one of them I wanted to mention tonight, because it has to do with America. And it's just one of a hundred strands that I could talk about. This is the strand of the peculiar nature of the American experiment and the American uh, the dignity and glory of America, which is at the same time uh, perhaps its fatal flaw. I myself come from a family that had one representative on the Mayflower. So through, through, through my mother, they were Protestants back to the Pilgrims. And through my father, they were Irish back to Ireland, Catholics. America was founded by Protestants and by believers in free churches who were rebelling against these large institutional structures of churches in Europe. And Cardinal Ratzinger knows quite a bit about this, studied this, and uh, actually is interested in this because um, the whole idea of American democracy is in some way related to this reality. That these pilgrims and these Puritans fled from Europe and from this sort of aristocratic structure that Europe had in union with the church, creating Christendom. And escaping from that, they came here and they set up these villages with churches that were separate. And this created a, a humus, a soil, out of which this concept of American democracy sprang and flourished. 
It was a Christian uh, soil, but it was a particular kind of Christian. Christian. It certainly was, in some ways, anti-hierarchical Christianity. Just as a brief note, when you think when you think about Christianity, uh, you can understand uh, the development. And this was part of my, my studies. I had the good fortune to study with Yaroslav Pelikan, who was uh, at Yale University. I think of him as perhaps the greatest American scholar of church history and church doctrine that we've had. He was a Lutheran. His father was a Lutheran minister, and he spoke, I think, about 16 languages. He learned German as a child, English, and then he spoke some Eastern European languages like Polish and Russian, and he knew all the classical languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, Syriac, and then he knew Spanish, French, etc. And he, uh, he gave me a lot of insights, and I, I, I drew from him. And one of them was to understand these church structures. The Catholic Church culminates in Peter, the person of the Pope who is in himself the Holy See. The Holy See is nothing other than the person of the Pope. And the whole curia around him is just his, his court or his assistance. The Anglicans, after the unfortunate, uh, sad uh, affair of Henry VIII, the split of the Anglicans from the Catholic Church, ended up making a slight change. They, they made an Episcopalian church separate from Rome, but they still called themselves Catholic. Everything was the same, in their view, in terms of doctrine, but they removed the Pope and they set the Queen of England, or the King of England, at the head of the church. The next level down was to go to a Presbyterian church, where the presbyters, instead of the bishops, the presbyters would rule the church, the priests. Then the next level down would be the congregation, the congregationalists. So we finally get to the communities in America. We've diminished the hierarchy about four times. There's a deep truth here into the reason Americans are unable to sense hierarchical distinctions that are so clear, both in Europe and in the Orient. We were leveled out. We were leveled out, and we were leveled out in our religion, and then we leveled out our politics. Uh, later on, this created a tension between America and Rome with regard to the Catholic Church. And there was a type of development called Americanism, which Leo XIII actually condemned about 100 years ago. 110 years ago, actually. Now, for the last few years, we've had in the leadership in our country a group called the Neoconservatives. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. <laughs> Some of them are Catholics. And uh, neo, of course, means new. And conservative means conservative. So it's kind of a tension and a contradiction in the two words. Conserving usually is conserving the old, and the new is in tension with the old. Their intention, in part, also with so-called paleoconservatives, which are old conservatives, people who derive from the thinking of Russell Kirk and uh, 
did not pass through this kind of conversion experience that most of the neocons passed through, which was to be very liberal and then to become conservative. That's why they're called neoconservative, new conservatives. Now, one of the paleoconservatives was, is David Schindler. And there's a picture of him here in my magazine. And uh, I've known David for 15 or 20 years. And I once was in the middle of a debate between David Schindler and two or three Catholic neoconservatives named Father Newhouse and George Weigel and Michael Novak. And at Trent DeJourney magazine, we ran a photograph of a meeting with myself and those three and a couple of the Italian journalists. And the Italians put on the headline, the neoconservative trinity. Father <laughs> <laughs> Newhouse, who has done a brilliant job with First Things magazine. Michael Novak, who is sort of the leading public Catholic intellectual theologian, and George Weigel also. Uh, but Schindler was critical of the three of them, and Trent Giorni was critical of the three of them, because they were arguing a type of defense of the American project, uh, <clears throat> taking precedence in a certain sense over the Catholic identity of the person and of the culture. And what Schindler was arguing was that there was a danger in this thought and that there ought to be a fundamental emphasis and a uh, choice made for the Catholic principle if it ever con conflicted with the American principle or the democratic principle or the capitalist principle. So there was this debate occurring, and uh, I asked Cardinal Ratzinger about it. I tried to describe some of the issues in the debate, and I said, who do you agree with? Do you agree with the Trinity, or do you agree with Schindler? Do you agree with the neocons, or with the paleocons? He said, well, you know, I think Schindler has a point. So I have moved forward in my life, in my career, in my writing, based on a few indications given me by Cardinal Ratzinger, by John Paul II, by his secretary. And uh, I don't uh, actually have written instructions. Uh, no one actually tells me what to do. I'm a free agent. Actually, quite, quite useful because I'm completely deniable. <laughs> uh, that was just him. That was his folly. So everything I'm saying tonight uh, and everything I put in the magazine is actually able to be judged, accepted, rejected by any Catholic and any person. But I decided, just before the Pope was coming to America, to go back to this old debate and to interview Schindler and say, how do you think the American experiment is developing? And the fact is that from 1990 on, the neocons emerged as it. They basically have run the show. I think they may be in their twilight, but uh, they've, had enough, they've had quite a run. Or they had quite a run. Uh, and Schindler did an interview which I found so beautiful that I thought I'd mention it here tonight. And I put it more or less in the center of the magazine. I did that on purpose. I do these things. Uh, I have a reason, sort of, 
artistic sense as I put a magazine together. And every month I feel pretty good that it's actually an artifact that comes out. It's kind of enjoyable. I think uh, work, Joseph Pieper, I think, argues that work gives dignity to man. And a lot of the problem we have in our culture is we don't see the results of our work. We don't touch them. And I think, uh, I don't want all of you to start magazines. <laughs> I would recommend doing things that have tangible results, because I think that has intellectual, psychological, and spiritual effects. Uh, the title of the article is a quote from the center of the interview. We love God in all that we love. We love God in all that we love. In a way, what this is an affirmation of being, of being a human being, of being a person, and loving things. Because what it says is, the thing that is Augustinian, it's what Augustine came to in his Confessions. Groping in the various human loves, he was groping for the love of God. Schindler, in his Augustinian way, repeats this. We love God in all that we love. And this is the center of Ratzinger's thought. And I thought I would uh, introduce the Pope's trip to America by getting at the very center of his thought. At the heart of Pope Benedict's basic proposal to culture is a particular conception of dialogue. Dialogue for Benedict is something we are before it is something we do. All right. For Benedict, human existence is dialogue with God, specifically with the Creator. Relation to God lies at the core of our being as creatures, and thus we implicitly invoke the question of the nature and existence of God in all of our conscious acts. Now this is a, it's getting to be a little bit integrist, a little bit to total, totalizing, as we used to say in Italian, with the communion and liberation people. Uh, they like that. They like that. Uh, but some people were critical of them because they're saying everything that you think and do relates to God. As Aquinas says, we know God implicitly in all that we know. Now again, that's... If you've never... There's a, there's a line in... Uh, in a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. O mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall. Hold them cheap he may who ne'er hung there. What he's saying is that in the human mind, it's like the Himalayas, and some of them are cliffs in your mind where you could despair, and you're clinging by your fingernails, and you're looking down, and you might fall. And someone else will say, you have no need to be concerned. That's just in your mind. But that other person is holding cheap the problems that you face. And, and uh, he says, hold them cheap he may who ne'er hung there. Uh, Aquinas says, we know God implicitly in all that we know. If you're hanging on a mountainside in your mind, it's great to know that's related somehow there is a God. And in a way, you're going to make it 
and things will cohere, the center will hold, there will be a meaning ultimately, and that meaning will be holy, and that meaning will be eternal, and that meaning will be good. This is the good news, that God is, and that the relationship of the human person to him is one of love, one of mercy, one of dialogue. This is the message Jesus came to preach. As Aquinas says, we know God implicitly in all that we know. And we love God implicitly in all that we love. Okay, again, what Benedict and what Schindler and what Catholic theology is teaching is that the, the central reality of being a person and of having consciousness and of living implies the existence of the absolute liver, the absolute knower, the absolute being. Now, there's a lot more that can be discussed about that, but the, the corollary point, once you get to that first point, the corollary point is embedded within the dialogue with God is an implicit dialogue with all other creatures. That's where you get the social gospel. That's where you get justice. That's where you get all human relations. Relation to others is given us inside the relation with the, with the creator. Okay. So the question is, why is Benedict's conception of dialogue relevant to American culture? Schindler uh, actually and he says, where polls indicate both a high belief in God and a widespread interest in the very question of God. In other words, America is 80%, 90% already persuaded of these things. Everyone believes in God. What's the problem? Why, why do we have such an ugly culture, such a trashy culture, such a superficial and almost uh, undignified and unworthy culture for human beings, so much of our culture? What's happened to us? Interestingly, Schindler says, Benedict says the problems of the West can all be traced back to the forgetfulness of God. In what sense is that true in America? First of all, one has to recognize the sincerity of Americans. They are not cynical when they say they believe in God. The question is how that is understood. Here the point is that even when the relation to God is important in people's lives, it tends to remain fragmentary. That is, the relation to God may be just one part, Sunday morning. It may be one important part of life in general, but then there are other things that are also important. The relation to the economy, making a profit, and so forth. There is a certain approach to owning things, to being a homeowner. There's a certain understanding of one's profession, all given in professional schools and law schools. It is not that the relation to God has no influence, but the influence is by way of a moral inspiration. The relation to God does not provide the deepest form and end of these various activities. Now, you may have over, he said it's a moral inspiration, and he made a slight criticism of that. In other words, Schindler is trying to get a conduit between God and man that is like without any impediment, without any 
uh, it's like a superconductor of, of electrons. So that you don't have a series of principles or laws by which you live, but you have a person who, through whom you live, through whom you have a relationship that then fructifies, makes fruitful, all these other things. That's Schindler's position, and I think it's also the Pope's position. At the heart of Ratzinger's theology lies this effort to recover the God-centeredness of all things, to recover the true nature of the creature's relation to God. This is still Schindler. Relation to God is what is most fundamental about the creature and what forms the creature as a creature from the beginning for as long as the creature exists. What the creature is in his deepest reality is from God and for God. This is what it means to have the structure of a sun in the sun. Okay, this is ontology. These are the fundamental, this is the fundamental question of what a person is, how that person conceives of himself or herself, and then how that person enters into a living relationship with the eternal, with the eternal person. That's just the point, Schindler says. For Benedict, the question of God's existence emerges from the heart of reason and nature. So, there's so much here that I could talk about, but I, I think that I'll just leave this for a moment and say, the theological principle from which Ratzinger sets out is that the Christian faith and the Christian life ought to be real and full and not a matter of principles, but a matter of personal relations. And if it's just principles, it's still under the law, as it were. And if it becomes a living relationship, then it's grace and truth. And this, in a sense, was the debate between the early Christians and the Jews. Uh, well, I would, uh, I would just make a couple of other points, and then I can answer some questions. I, in the two weeks after the. Uh, Pope's election, I put together this book based on the interviews that I had done with him over 10 or 15 years. And uh, I think it actually turned out pretty well. It's small, but sometimes less is more. And in here, there's a passage which I wanted to bring to your attention. The worship of God. And I, I'm going to read just a few words here. Worship. The word falls oddly on many modern ears. What does it mean to worship, to adore? Is it something one chooses to do as often as possible? Is it something one is forced to do on Sundays? Does it require a certain ritual, a certain behavior, a certain place? Who is the one worshiped? And why? For Ratzinger, the worship of God 
is the most important, beautiful, fitting, joy-filled, and satisfying, life-giving thing a human being can do. It is so, he believes, because God is the perfect being, eternal, holy, good, the source of all other beings and all life. As such, he is worthy of our adoration. It's like that phrase, worthy is the lamb. If anyone proposes a God who is unworthy, you certainly won't bow. This is why the early Christians did not burn the incense. They said, just take a pinch and burn the incense to Caesar, and you can save your life. Otherwise, we'll regard you as a traitor. <coughs> but they could not burn incense, which was reserved only to the divine, because they knew Caesar was unworthy. Not only was he by nature human, but by his practice, he was a criminal, or a madman, or a scoundrel. The great journey of everyone's life is to find who is worthy of your love and of your, finally, of your worship. And that journey is one that all Christians enter on and engage upon. And when you finally realize that after looking all over the place and maybe reading the Eastern writers, the Hindu, the maybe reading and thinking about all the various pathways that people have followed, and then you come back and you see the carpenter hanging on the cross who didn't ask anything <coughs> except to sacrifice his life. He didn't do anything except good things. Suddenly you realize that the God that you sought is already there. The king is the worthy king, not the president or the czar or the emperor, but the crucified Lord. Once you make that decision, it's also got a political consequence. Everything political is relativized. You can no longer be uh, an automaton or a uh, mass man. And this is why, in a certain sense, true Christianity is, in some way, always countercultural, and in some ways can be inimical to totalitarian systems. Which is why, among other reasons, I like it very much. <laughs> but sometimes Christianity can lose its savor, and Christians can lose their faith, and they can forget their their traditions. They can be uh, captured and sent to Babylon. And uh, these are tragedies. These are cultural and spiritual tragedies. <coughs> All of North Africa was Christian, and it's no, no longer Christian. Christianity can disappear. The Pope has actually stated this on some publications. He said, we are not promised that Christianity will remain until the end of the world in all places. Sometimes it disappears. It could disappear here. We have legislation pending in Canada and America and many Western countries that would prohibit certain Christian beliefs. We may find ourselves again in the catacombs. Maybe we are in a type of catacomb. Maybe uh, there is a glass ceiling. Maybe people don't act fully as Christians when they're in the workplace or uh, 
in academia. I can say academia is a tough place for Christians. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. Only God, the true God, would be a fit object of human worship. It is this that the first of the Ten Commandments reveals. No other gods are worthy of human worship, but the true God is. To worship the true God is for Ratzinger to draw close to the ultimate source and meaning of everything in the universe. To be in communion with that source in prayer and in song and in other ritual acts, and therefore in some way to participate in the very life of that divine being who is worshipped. To worship God is, for Ratzinger, very near to the same thing, though it is not exactly the same thing, as to love God. To worship and to love are intimately related and intertwined. Since this is so, Ratzinger believes that knowing how to pray, to worship, to enter into communion with God, to love God, and then receiving back from God some portion, some particle, some semblance of his divine life, becomes the single most important and wonderful thing a person can do in this world. That is why at the center of the church's life is the Eucharist. And that's why in this trip to America, the Pope will celebrate Mass. Now the media is going to be watching for the statements as there was one today on the airplane about the pedophilia scandal. That's the lead on AP and on Reuters tonight. I don't know if it's already on the evening news because I never watch television. It is. All right. Each journalist was asked to put a question into a bucket, and they picked a couple of them during the papal flight to ask the Pope. And uh, they probably they probably did it in advance, and the Pope knew he was going to answer, and he intentionally was going to try before landing, you know, as it were international waters. <laughs> the, the airplane is over the Atlantic. He, uh, he answers the question and, in a sense, sets it aside. He no longer really has to address it now that he's here. Uh, it's a tragic and horrible question, and uh, he made it the first question, the, pre, the pre-landing question. And he said that uh, it's a tragic thing that at the very heart of the priesthood and at the heart of the liturgy, there were crimes so grave that they are hard to even think of and mention. And uh, you, you, you touch here near to what we might call the diabolical. And that's why I say that there's always a struggle in the church and in our own lives. And uh, some, every one of us has to find the balance between um, obsessing about this, the struggle and the temptations and the things that could distract us or destroy us and keeping our good humor and our faith. I think probably it's better to err on the side of good humor and faith and uh, not think so much about the devil. Just, but other people have different judgments on that question. Uh, so the Pope is, going, is here now in America, and uh, he's going to have four or five main appointments. And each of them is typically Ratzingerian. What he's done throughout his whole career is choose his moments, choose his battles. 
During the 25 years that he was the Grand Inquisitor, he had about five main battles. That was the whole thing was summed up in five main confrontations. And usually it was one man, him against one other person, one theologian. Maybe there were a few more than five. But Leonardo Boff and liberation theology. It was beautiful. Boff comes in with his Franciscan robes and big beard. Of course, now he's left the priesthood. But the whole question there was, shall man live by bread alone or by every word that issues from the mouth of God? Leonardo Boff was saying, well, at least we've got to have the bread. We've got to start with that. We've got to concentrate on that. And Ratzinger was saying, no, no. You're reversing the order. The bread will come, but we must start with worship of God. In other words, Leonardo Boff had a social gospel, had a revolutionary gospel. It's a gospel you can sense the need for. The problem is, what is the ultimate effect? If you build a society based on that, ultimately you will um, forget that transcendent dimension. If you start from the transcendent dimension, then you can build a just society. If you start from the dimension of building only the just society within a kind of horizontal framework, you end up always running over individual people for the sake of the cause. You will always run your bulldozer over the simple people who have to die or have to be in prison or have to be executed for the sake of reaching that promised just society that your revolution wants to create. And often it's Marie Antoinette or it's the landowner Somehow, we have to find a way to have a just society. But it's not the ideological way that Leonardo Boff proposed. That was the liberation theology that he proposed, and Ratzinger debated him. And that was the first great debate of his inquisitorship. And then you had Charles Curran, Catholic University. Uh, with proportionalism and sometimes the uh, things, there can be a good intent, you can commit bad acts, but the, your good intention overcomes that. So moral theology that became so, if it feels good, do it. Um, in a sense, finally lacking in all discipline and all rigor and in all uh, clarity. And in America, the Pope is going to choose, I would just, I would say, three big confrontations. But he's not confronting in the sense of a fighter, he's confronting in the sense of a witness. And the first one is tomorrow afternoon with the bishops. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we have a contradiction when we think of bishops because we all respect and love and honor bishops. I don't know that anyone, is anyone here a bishop? <laughs> I don't think, I don't know that anyone here would want to be a bishop. Um, terrible task. I don't know that any uh, bishop will ever have to go to purgatory because maybe they've already been there with their chanceries, with the press with their priests who are always uh, human beings and with all the people. 
they have to be shepherds of, uh, of flocks which are always being scattered and running away. But they are called to that, and they're called to continue in that task, and the Pope is going to try to call them again and encourage them to fulfill that role and not be spineless uh, cowards. Then he's got a meeting with uh, university presidents. Mm -hmm. And we have a diminishing number of Catholic colleges. And then we also, in some ways, we have a danger of uh, ghettoized Catholic colleges as a reaction to the other ones. So we really are between two uh, dangers. Um, and uh, I would love to see uh, a takeover of Catholic University, which is doing pretty well, and Georgetown and then bring in Christendom and have all three of them create the great Catholic University of America that would be the best in the world. Um, we'd probably have to fire most of the staff <laughs> You want two things with a university. You want intellectual rigor and then you want some kind of vision and some kind of discipline which, uh, which inspires. Uh, I would say that uh, probably it will reward uh, one or two readings, uh, whatever the Pope says, to the university presidents. And I think it will go down as one more landmark in the type of reflection that we've had among uh, great Catholic intellectuals about what our education ought to be, what its principles ought to be. There's no question we have a crisis in Catholic education. We may not even have any Catholic education. It's hard to... I don't know what you think about it, but uh, many of our Catholic universities are indistinguishable from every other secular university. So it's as if they don't exist any longer as Catholic universities. And the shift was just, it was just like the frog boiling in the, in the pot. You hardly knew where it started, but when it finally finished, the, uh, the frog was boiled. And the university was without a Catholic character. Now we've had these eight or 10 or 15 other small Catholic universities spring up. And they're wonderful and they're vibrant, but they somehow are, are they face a danger of being isolated and, uh, and uh, uh, I really hope that we could perhaps create a network of them. Maybe they should have uh, campus uh, exchanges so that you would apply just to one. The Catholic University of America, you would go to about 20 different campuses and have uh, a chance to go you know, to Thomas Aquinas in California, which I was visiting there a few months ago. Beautiful out there. And the kids are great. They only have about 400, I believe. And then you could go and, you know, in a reformed Georgetown, you could, you could study in Washington. And then, uh, in a reform Notre Dame, you could have a great Midwestern campus. Maybe a good football team. <laughs> <laughs> we might need a new coach, though. <laughs> so the first talk will be with the bishops, then with the Catholic universities. We're going to meet with all the presidents. We're going to have a small room there in the Basilica, locked in. <laughs> and uh, then there's going to be uh, ground zero. And uh, there's a mystery about the talk. Did you see that news flash that went out? That the, the, the advanced text of the talk, there's no mention of Jesus Christ. 
It's the only advanced text where there's a missing, there's no prayer mentioning Jesus, as it was a couple of days ago. Ground Zero is kind of the heart of the darkness that is uh, at the center right now of our predicament because uh, it's a psychological and spiritual wound in our country and it's uh, the source of our, of our um, desire now to heal that wound and uh, it led inevitably almost uh, as in a Greek tragedy, it led us into Iraq. And uh, it's like rereading the Peloponnesian War all over again. Uh, Athens, which was the great uh, beacon of Greek Hellenic culture, and so powerful and so strong, uh, slowly uh, exhausted its, uh, its uh, democracy and its uh, young men and its wealth. and. Uh, and uh, through the wars that it uh, engaged with Sparta. And uh, somehow we need to find our way. And uh, it starts by assessing ground zero. And uh, right next to ground zero, there'll be the other, the other sort of twin moment in New York with the United Nations. The United Nations is very odd, idealistic. Uh, institution sprang out of the Second World War, already sprang obviously out of the League of Nations in the First World War. I always think that uh, if you think of European culture and sort of Western culture living through the life of a human being, uh, we were descended from the ancients. We came and sprang from the, from, the, from the Jews and from the Greeks, Greco Romans, Greek Roman culture, the Romans. We had a thousand years of Christendom, more or less from 500 to 1500, and Christendom started to break up under the uh, Reformation. And uh, just, just as that uh, internal uh, dynamism was occurring, there were technological breakthroughs that allowed Europeans to have a five century period where they dominated the world, by 1500 to 2000. And uh, that was particularly navigational instruments and sailing vessels, and they conquered the world. And they Christianized, they Christianized in some way the world. The Catholic missionaries, the Jesuit missionaries, and the Protestant missionaries. And the, that was the sort of full maturity of European culture. But we finally saw in the 20th century the, the crack up in some ways. Uh, I can't think of anything more tragic than the First World War, where millions of young men, 18, 20, 22, 24 years old, handsome young men, threw themselves, as you may have seen in the film, for example, like Gallipoli. Has anyone ever seen that film? There, their countries were all Christian countries. Their leaders were all related. The Tsar of Russia was related to the Kaiser of Germany, was related to the Queen of England, and related to the ruling class in France, and of course to the Habsburgs. 
And they fought uh, what they thought was going to be a three-week war for four years. And they fought it for <laughs> what we might call a slaughterhouse along the Somme River, where people piled up corpses of these young men year after year after year. And Pope Benedict XV said, this is folly. And it was the beginning of the suicide of Europe. There probably are ways that you could go back and study why that war, the guns of August, and how it developed, and why it occurred, and why it was necessary. But looking back now, there's no doubt in my mind that it was the beginning of Europe's self-destruction. You lost all those young men. You then had the 1920s. And out of the, the consequences of the First World War, politically, were the end of all the Christian regimes of Europe. So Christendom comes to an end in 1918. We are now 90 years later. The Austro-Hungarians were Catholic, the Holy Roman Emperor. After a 1,000 years, he was exiled, actually. He died in exile, if you recall. They've just uh, beatified the Emperor Karl, last emperor of Austria. The Queen of England was Anglican. The Kaiser of Germany was a Protestant. And the Tsar of Russia was Orthodox. They were all Christians. All of them were swept away. In Russia, there was a regime, regime that, for the first time, was explicitly atheist. And in 1928, I believe, it introduced abortion legislation for the first time in Western culture as an ordinary legal right. Our culture started to be transformed. Started to be, of course, you can trace these things further back. But uh, Mussolini came to power, the fascists in Italy, and he said, this is year one, just as in the French Revolution. The communists swept away everything that they could. They, they killed thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and finally millions in the gulags. The uh, Germans developed a new type of regime under the National Socialists. It was a kind of transcendent pagan religion that was utterly opposed to Christianity. Thought of Christianity as the Jewish virus injected into Western culture. So European history shifts at the First World War. And the Second World War is the second part of the First World War. And out of the Second World War came four or five things, which one of the great things, one of the most prominent things was the United Nations. This new world order where all the governments of the world can come together in New York City and have a meeting and avoid war, and come to agreement, have dialogue. In some ways, it's a high hope. And in other ways, it's been disastrous. And the church has found that the moral principles particularly regarding some life issues like abortion that are propounded by the majority of the nations of the world now at the United Nations are unacceptable to Christians. And interestingly enough, we have found alliances with the Muslims, as most of you probably know. So the Pope will arrive at the United Nations within this whole context to make a call for yes, keeping the ideal of people talking so we will not have war, but also that they return to a type of analysis and understanding of the dignity of human beings, which will transcend what we've had for the last 50 years, a new understanding of the culture of life. 
new understanding of what is human dignity, maybe a new bill of rights, international human rights, including rights of the unborn. So I expect there's some dramatic moments just in these next four days that will be historic, and uh, I think we're privileged to, to be here and watch them unfold. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll take mm, nine questions. <laughs> Sir. In reference to the second meeting, Pope is having with educators. This is interesting. We graduated with Georgetown. I've seen Georgetown become less a Catholic university. I don't know if people can hear you. Become less a Catholic university. He says Georgetown has become less Catholic. He's a graduate of Georgetown. He remained Catholic. <laughs> and it, it, uh, you know, I see the ministries of some uh, Protestant groups in, in the public colleges doing a better job uh, spreading Christianity than the modern So I, it, it worries me, and I'm hopeful that the Pope will take a very decisive position on it and, and make his position known that the Jesuits have got to somehow get back to Christian education. And I was there. With, Everybody had to take four, year, four semesters of religion. Uh, that's long disappeared. And probably some course in social thought that's been now given. Well, you know, the, you, you've made a comment. I don't know what the Pope is going to say. And it's possible that he will waste the opportunity. But I, I think, I'm hopeful, that he'll say all Catholic colleges are going to have to do this and this. And we're in a new era where the situation is so grave that uh, emergency uh, measures need to be taken. And maybe there needs to be a, a kind of interregnum here where he calls a committee of people to kind of oversee and decide yes or no, these are Catholic, these are not Catholic. Unless they meet certain criteria, they can't be <coughs> Catholic. Maybe he'll say something like that. Well, part of the criteria is already out there in ex Yeah. And only 20 of the 220 colleges conform to that as of the moment. Mm -hmm. Most conspicuous of the Society of Jesus. Uh, you think the new uh, general, Father Nicholas, will bring them back into the church? He doesn't seem to be <coughs> Ignatius of Loyola. No. <laughs> uh, He's Pedro Rube II, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, that's another matter. The Jesuits probably are our greatest, uh, we need the Jesuits. That's what I was, I, without elaborating, I would say, unless the Jesuits recover our battle, our struggle, our life, our cultural engagement is weak, because they were trained, you know, it was, they were the pros. They studied for 15 years. People can be saints and have families, but the Jesuits were on the front lines with regard to intellectual life, political life, cultural life. They knew history. They were trained. Now what happened is they got so trained that they lost um, something happened. I'm, I'm not sure. Anyone, there are many different analyses. 
but the restoration of the Jesuit order would be the most hopeful and important sign that we're restoring the Catholic Church, that we're rebuilding Zion. And this election of the, I'm not so happy with the election of this uh, new superior general because he seems, he seems to be unaware of the high calling that he could respond to. And he's responding to another calling which isn't quite as high. But I can, I can be wrong. Yeah, sir. Uh, you mentioned certain moments that the uh, Pope will be having. Um, one, I think, is in New York before the uh, United Nations in that uh, doesn't he have a mass yeah. with priests and religious? Yes, he has. Which I think will also be a moment that uh, have quite a bit of influence. Uh, religious life, all, all Catholic life ought to be religious life. So we did develop over centuries specific charisms. Certain religious leaders had their communities formed around them, the Franciscans, the Jesuits. All of this has entered in the modern world for various reasons, some of which are sociological and economic. Uh, these are in crisis. Almost every religious order is in crisis. It's, um, it's as grave a crisis as the time of the Protestant Reformation and as the time of the Arian and Gnostic heresies. What we have is the world is too much with us. Uh, we have secularism. We have what we call, in quotes, modernism. There is a loss of the sense of the transcendent, uh, a loss of the sense of the sacred. It's, uh, it's just escaped us. Uh, it's like amnesia. It's like we were knocked on the head and something we woke up and didn't remember who we were. There is no sense that there is a dignity to that style of life, that commitment, that sacrifice. The restoration of that is a difficult uh, question. It's hard to simply say to all these women and all these men, just follow, I guess, Benedict Rochelle or, or the Dominican nuns and, and just, yeah, I mean, she's a wonderful person. And it could be that that's a way of reaffirming, but somehow I think the thing has gone so far that there probably needs to be a new development here. And no one that I know, well, a lot of people are thinking about it, but no one yet has proposed a full and complete answer. So the, the tragedy is, just like the home mortgage business, which is about uh, still in the next few months, uh, actually the uh, subprimes are being reset the next few months more than they were in the past year. So a word to the wise. We've got huge spikes coming up in the next few months, but also in religious life. Every women's religious order demographically is in wintertime. Uh, so that economically and uh, even in terms of health, uh, these nuns will be living uh, alone with no, new, uh, with no new novices and with no one to take care of them. It is... Uh, it is, that's why I say that in a strange way, the, uh, the attack 
the attack on the church of modernism or of secular humanism was in some ways more effective than the Soviet communist attack. Uh, is, is part of yeah is part of his thinking that the loss of the sacred comes in part from the the change of the mass? I believe so. Now we know trying to recover that and recover yeah. some of that sense of the sacred. Yeah, this is the question of the motu proprio, the question of the liturgy, the spirit of the liturgy. I think you're talking about it in a few days. The, the liturgy was rewritten in the, in the wake of Second Vatican Council. Aníbal Ebunini and his team. Paul VI attended the first sort of practice mass, and uh, at the end, he said, where is the mystery? The mystery is gone. It was intentional to change the mass and, in a sense, open it up to the light and air of the modern world. Put it in the vernacular remove excessive ritual gestures that seemed either mystifying or superstitious in some way. Approach the Protestants, who had a, a liturgy that was reduced essentially to the world, and uh, in some way lay the basis for the reunion, notionally for the reunion, ecumenical reunion of the church. This all occurred in a very rapid period, and uh, it was driven through by some very um, energetic men. And many bishops and cardinals have said to me that, uh, and Ratzinger himself has written repeatedly, the church should apologize for the confusion of the implementation of the liturgical reform. It was psychologically so damaging to tell people what you have reverenced, what you have felt sacred, is of no importance any longer. This could not have been done better by an enemy. Ratzinger was at the Second Vatican Council in his 30s. He was rather progressive. But by the late 60s, he was seeing that this thing was going too far, that the implementation was, was an often was occurring that one place in Holland would try something and Rome wouldn't react, and then three places, and then finally Rome would approve it. So it was ad hoc, and it was out of control, and it was not thought through, and it would be a mistake for people who defend or promote the new liturgy to say that it was. It was a movement that a few people took control of, and the Pope kind of followed along Paul VI and approved it, even though, for example, remember, you all know that Cardinal Ottaviani, his grand inquisitor, his top theologian, said, you've got theological errors here in your description of the Mass, your lack of uh, reference to the sacrifice of the Mass, in your effort to reach out to the Protestants. You've maybe impaired a little bit Catholic theology. And the Pope changed the uh, prefatory letter to the, to the publication of the New Mass. That's, this was 68, 69. Things were rushing. 
It'd be very interesting for all of you to go study those years once again. But they introduced the new mass. And then they went beyond that to denigrate the old mass, which never should have occurred. The first thing and the, the fundamental thing that the Pope has done in his works on the liturgy, and liturgy is extremely important to him. He once said that the, actually he hoped he would retire, not be elected Pope, and spend several years in a monastic quiet setting and really write his great work on the liturgy. Because the liturgy is about God. It's a, it's a central point of theology. It's how we worship God. It's how we relate to God. And the Mass is the place where that occurs. And it shouldn't be superstitious, nor should it be a sect-like little conventicle. And some more progressive theologians and liturgists say that there was that danger in the old liturgy, and that it, that danger is returning among those who appreciate or like the old liturgy. But this is really false. The old liturgy was a universal liturgy, organically created, and this is what the Pope has written as well, over centuries and centuries, rooted back in Judaism. The old liturgy was Judaic. It was like a Passover meal that was then rendered into Greek and Roman and then into all the rest of our cultures. The modern mass is in some way a rationalized construction of post-World War I and II Europeans who have lost all confidence in Christian culture because of those wars. So the Pope tried to get the mass, the old mass, to be respected again, appreciated again, not just regarded as something left in the junk heap. And he said, we can, any priest can celebrate it. But the vast majority of bishops and the vast majority of priests disagreed with him. They flew to Rome and said, don't promulgate this. And uh, one of his best uh, supporters, uh, Archbishop Ranjith, who was a good friend, um, told me privately, he said, the Pope uh, is being put under such tremendous pressure, I'm not sure he's ever going to publish it. Remember that we were waiting one to follow up. Well, we waited a long time. He finally published it. But the point is, we know for sure from inside information that many powerful churchmen were saying, publish this over my dead body. And he finally still published it. So it was an act of courage. But the implementation of it, I believe what he thinks will happen is something over decades and centuries. I don't think he's expecting over one year that the church will change. He's now established from the top that the old mass is not an illegitimate or narrow-minded ceremony. But, the, but the, he's, he's even called it the, uh, what's the phrase he uses? The extraordinary form. Extraordinary form of the liturgy in the sense that it is the fullness and the organic richness of the liturgy. I really think you could you could read and interpret his document, uh, Sumorum Pontificum. I think in 20, 30, 40 years, they'll be found that that opened the way toward a restoration of Catholic tradition that was almost going out. I do. I think it was a great document. But 
very few people are reading it that way, and many people are not implementing it. But here and there, there are centers. It's like the Benedictine monasteries in Europe when Rome fell. They kept culture going. They copied the manuscripts. There'll be centers of Catholic culture, and, and they'll aggregate people to them. Communities will grow up around them. Children will be formed by them. Saints will come out of them. Scholars, intellectuals. And that's the path, path that the church will find its future from, I think. I think the, you know them by their fruits. The fruits, I think, and again, we just in recent days had news stories. I think the Pew poll about a Catholic practice in America is we're under 20% mass attendance. People just don't go to mass. Catholics are not what we would have called Catholics 40 or 50 years ago. So we're in a crisis, and the Pope is trying to be a teacher, trying to open pathways back to the traditional teaching and liturgy, and um, being fought at every step of the way. But the, the fight isn't so visible. It's just uh, uh, a silent battle. I think the people who are opposed to the Pope are waiting for him to die. And I think the Pope is on his exercise bicycle. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking to all of the different crises that the different aspects of Christianity has been suffering through the last several decades. And don't you think that a lot of it has to do with people? Well, you're speaking to the culture and society that we live in, which is a very instant gratification. I don't want to think. Don't ask me to add this up on paper by hand. My handwriting isn't very good because I never learned to spend the time to discipline myself enough. Oh, I don't want to do the old mass because, wow, it may be too much work. I have to use my senses and my brain and think about it. And if we look at physics and science and math, all of that emerged from religion. All of that came from thinking and hard work and imagination, using our senses, using everything that God gave us. And we're still rediscovering things that the Greeks came up with in, in modern physics. So there's a lot to be said for a little hard work, a little effort a little patience, a little discipline, and maybe that all needs to be reintroduced because, uh, and, and be made a focus of every branch of thought within the Catholic Church. Because it does work. It was always there. Mankind wouldn't be as interesting and as fantastic as we are now. And it wouldn't have happened without religion. Um, it wouldn't have happened without Christianity or any of the other established religions, but it's the it's us, our souls, our spirits, all of that old-fashioned, well, your, natural. Your remarks remind me of uh, a phrase at the end of the decline and fall of Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. He says. What a tremendous fall this was, <laughs> where the aqueducts, which had brought water from the mountains, where people had warm water. This is 2,000 years ago. They had roads. They could send letters from Paris to Rome in a couple of days through their Pony Express. Caesar was running up and down from Gaul to Rome, back and forth. 
They had sh swift ships to Alexandria and Palestine. But the whole thing fell. The mighty fabric was torn. And he said, nevertheless, they didn't lose the fundamental things. They still knew fire. And they still grew crops. He said, it would be a great tragedy if such uh, advancements as human beings had made to master fire and master crops were finally forgotten completely. Then we would return to a state of savagery. And we would be completely uh, without culture. Culture means to cultivate. And it's interesting that animals are um, driven by instinct. Now, we have instincts, but animals know well, there's a nest of a bird outside my window, and the mother knew how to feed the babies, and the babies knew how to take the food, and then she kicked them out of the nest, and they knew how to fly, and then they knew how to make their lives. But kids today don't know whether to go to college or, or watch a video game. In other words, human beings have to make choices. So the critical thing is to form them. You're talking about formation, learning how to write, and that's back to the Jesuits, that's back to the Catholic schools and the Catholic teachers, that's back to the whole question of what is a human being and the value of a human being. And we are, in some ways, analogous to diamonds. A diamond cutter takes a stone and makes it by cutting it brilliant. Each of us in our lives has had a teacher or a father or a mother, and each of us has lacked at times the necessary cutting. We are created by the cutting that is done upon us. We are made into the persons, into the people, into the souls by the suffering we go through, by the love we experience. And what you're talking about is the need for all of our society in America to think of each person as a diamond that needs to be educated, cultivated, cut, supported, and sometimes disciplined in order to bring forth that shining, sparkling character that that person has. This is the center, this should be the center of the culture of life. It should be the center of our culture. Uh, Why don't we take one more question, then, and then if there's anything else... Oh, we'll we take two. we got two more. Okay. You said that you were in a crisis regarding religious orders. Would you say that with the new orders um, popping up, like the, um, the uh, Dominicans yeah. at Ann Arbor, yeah. and you've got all these, these uh, new orders that are very yes. like magisterium, that are really, I mean... Uh, uh, they, they have so many locations, and then all these other ones are going to start dying off as these other new communities. This, yeah, it's partly that will happen. I visited uh, Mother Asamta Asamtalong and was struck by her strength and her integrity. But most of all, the young nuns. Very young. Hmm? Very young. Yeah, and then one, one, one was a waitress down at the Breakers in Florida and had a boyfriend and went out to the Bahamas and then just became distraught and despairing at the meaninglessness of her life. She said, somehow I saw Mother Asanta on EWTN, you know, on the side of a hotel lobby, sat down, 
thought, I better go talk to somebody. Went, got back and got in touch with She said, the day I put on my habit, the day I, I took the vows to be the bride of Christ, she said, it was the happiest day of my life. No regrets. We had this conversation. I was thinking, well, this is the way religious life used to be, happy. And um, I think that they are attracting people. It's still so small that it's hard to know what its future will be. But it's a very beautiful. I mean, and I've traveled and seen. I met Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and uh, I met her nuns. And uh, you probably have met them at times as well. They seem to have inner joy. Inner, inner contentment. And that's why Mother Teresa said, America is poor. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, yeah, that inner contentment that they have in their eyes, um, that's priceless. So, everyone should read her book. Hmm? Everyone should read her book. Everyone should read her book. We have one more question. How do you think uh, our parents going to reconcile the church with the people. And indeed, I think the Catholic Church inflict a lot of pain to, to the people throughout all these years, including the liberal issues that were just resolved a few, uh, a year ago. And now, with all that abuse right in the middle, and the Cardinal O'Malley uh, trying to invite the Pope to Boston so he can reconcile with it. Yeah. The whole issue. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Uh, well, the last thing you were saying, Cardinal O'Malley in Boston, where so many people have felt betrayed by the church, uh, wanted the Pope also to visit Boston. Uh, well, the Pope has protected his physical health by restricting his activities. He meets far fewer people than John Paul II met. He's uh, concentrating on his mission. I really think that the, some of the most conservative Catholics are critical of this pope because he doesn't seem to be as strict and as dogmatic as they had hoped he would be because what he's doing is what you are talking about. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about love. He's talking about God's presence in people's lives, hope. His first encyclical was on love. His second encyclical was on hope. He wasn't writing encyclicals about sins and, and limbo and theological questions, which always are intellectual matters and always are mysteries. They always surpass the human intellect in any case. So I think, actually, it's a funny thing. He has a ready smile, and he's a gentle man, and in fact, Far from being a kind of Prussian German military officer, he is far more like Heidi's grandfather. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, you know, you saw him on TV, you've seen him, but you really see him the next few days. But when he came out on the balcony, this is a picture when he came out on the balcony when he was elected pope. He had a smile that was unprecedented. I never saw him smile so widely, and he has kept that up. I, you know, he is not conflicted. Paul VI was like a, was kind of tense and and, 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 and worry and like Hamlet. This Pope. <laughs> I'm 
sorry if I've. Uh, but no, but this this pope I think elected at the age of. doesn't have the same concerns that a man at 58 or 38. He's matured. He's matured, and he just said, I've really just got one or two points I want to make over and over again. Uh, God is love. Let's, let's try to become uh, worthy uh, of his love, because he loved us first, and let's love others. I mean, this is the law and the prophets, as Jesus said when the scribes and Pharisees asked him, what was the content of the law. He said it's all summed up in these two things. It's kind of a short course. <laughs> so he has left aside many things that people might have thought he would concentrate on. Encyclical on love, encyclical on hope, and a little bit of restoration of the liturgy, and a kind of call to people in religious life, try to discern your vocation and try to live it. But, but no... Uh, no condemnations, no anathemas. So uh, I think he's trying to lead by uh, persuasion and by example. But you look at Paul John Paul II, apologized to the Jew. That was the greatest reconciliation. Well, the Pope is uh, is trying. I think. Actually, this. I'll end with this. I think he's an intelligent man. He may be, perhaps, as intelligent as any man I've ever met in my life, in intellectual terms. But the thing that sets him apart is his spiritual vision. He looks at our world today in the light of 9-11, in the light of the post-Second World War consensus, which seems to be a little bit shaky right now. And he sees a world that, in technology, is almost like a chariot that's out of control. We're about to mix uh, the genetic code of animals and men. Yeah. Right, so he's saying, okay, he's, he's got these years to try to remind us what is the real human dignity. And in terms of the world order, he doesn't want a clash of civilizations, as Huntington prophesied. He sees that it's coming. It's already here. It's upon us. War is upon us. But he would like not to have a repetition of War One and War Two in War Three. So Islam, he's called on these 138 Islamic scholars to come to Rome in November. That would be a very interesting meeting. A lot of people mock it. They say it's impossible. But he's, he said to them, though, that they must come to a common ground based on reason. That was the center of his Regensburg talk. He also recognizes that there are tremendous tensions and inequalities. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you know, but there are, there's a rice shortage in about six countries right now. For all our vaunted technology, we've something, something's wrong with our system. And uh, the Chinese and the Indians are emerging. The Russians are sort of hanging around. Europe has this kind of strange new European Union, but no babies. And, and, the, and Islam is, is, is changing the face of Europe. So the Pope watches the whole world. The main thing is spiritual for him, but also in terms of human affairs, I think what he wants 
at the beginning of the 21st century is to propose that we talk using reason as human beings and then we approach uh, the possibility of peace and then we can go forward to talk about faith, hope, love, and the eternal things. I think this is his message. It's a message of hope, but if, uh, if, if in our news bit and soundbite world, if anyone can hear it, that's a different question. Thank you.